I'm Caleb Brown, host of the Cato Daily Podcast, and I'm taking this time to ask you during the month of December to financially support the Cato Daily Podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute to advance individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and support our efforts. This is the only time of the year when I make this request, so I'm adding something. If you support Cato to the tune of $1,000 or more, I'll gladly give you a shout-out on the podcast, or you can designate another individual to receive the benefits of that donation. Just visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started, and thank you. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, December 7th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Most Americans believe in free enterprise. Most Americans reject socialism. And contrary to how we're portrayed in the media, most Americans are fairly tolerant of one another. So says Tony Woodleaf, author of the new book, I, Citizen, A Blueprint for Reclaiming American Self-Governance. Federalism, he argues, makes it easier to compromise in part because we're compromising with people that we're more likely to know. The book is available today. Pollsters got it wrong in 2016. Pollsters got it wrong in 2020. And uh, you argue that that is there is potentially a uh, motivation for why they are wrong. That's right. Um, Pollsters come to their work with uh, an ideological lens. They want to find ideology, and they're very disappointed in Americans when they don't find consistent hard left or hard right ideology because that makes for a good narrative. So they misinterpret what they read. Um, In many ways, they make the same mistake with Americans that the media made with Donald Trump, which is they took him literally but not seriously. And I I believe pollsters do that with um, the responses they get on their surveys. So uh, hard left and hard right, that's... Those are categories that mix up a lot of different people. Right. Have pollsters made adjustments? That is to say, looking at the political spectrum as less of a line and more of a flat surface? I, I believe it depends on um, the, the results you're looking at and what they're surveying on. Uh, two of the longstanding surveys in America that we get a lot of data from, one out of the University of Michigan, the other out of the University of Chicago, they ask um, consistently, they ask their respondents to place themselves on an ideological scale. And then a lot of other pollsters that are doing kind of issue polling do something similar. And they find that most Americans cluster in the middle. And that frustrates them, um, especially when Americans flip-flop on issues. One year they're for foreign intervention, the next year they're against foreign intervention. And political scientists look at that and they conclude, well, Americans aren't serious. They don't They don't know what they think. So, and, so what, give me uh, a some a data point to say that uh, pollsters have concluded this incorrect thing. <laughs> well, I'll give you an example. There's a lot of books on um, polling and public opinion, uh, and often what they'll they'll do is there, there's some standard questions in take the national election studies, which is a highly respected um, ongoing survey. Uh, the political scientists will look at the results, and uh, you take a standard question like paraphrasing here, do you believe that America can make the world better by intervening in other countries or should we stay home? And you can do panel surveys. They do panel surveys where they're asking the same respondents in multiple years their opinions on that question. And they see a substantial number of respondents flip-flop. One year, yes, we should intervene. Two years later, four years later, no, we shouldn't intervene. The political scientists look at these answers or take a question on welfare. Should we have more welfare or less? They see the flip-flop and they say, Americans don't really know what they want. Now, a more charitable reading, in my opinion, is Americans actually are watching the news. So if you see someone in the 90s 
say, first, I'm for intervention. We got to go stop the terrorists, is what he's thinking. And then he sees the disaster we made of that. And then he says, I don't think we should intervene. We should stay home. There's plenty of books on public opinion that take that example and say, ah, he doesn't know what he's talking. So salience. Right. Right. And, and recency. So if you take, you know, um, you ask someone, should we have more or less welfare? Well, he doesn't know how much we spend on welfare. He probably doesn't know anybody on welfare. Uh, so he's going to rely on what he saw in the news recently about a welfare queen or about poverty. Uh, and we look at those flip-flops, political scientists look at those flip-flops and they say he doesn't have any serious opinion. What they don't get into is whether he has a fixed and stable opinion on the matter of helping people in need. And when we look at that, we find that Americans are quite stable and I would say reasonable and center-right on most issues. Uh, but political scientists overlook that. Okay. So what's the, what is the takeaway from political scientists getting these things, these questions wrong? Well, what they do um, is they're subtly asking the question, are Americans suited for self-governance? And they'll set this up as a question of democracy. Are Americans suited to participate in democracy? And they conclude, well, they're not. And then, then you have your justification from people on the left, which many political scientists are, or folks on the right, the kind of sourpuss, monarchist, uh, sort of Mamari um, uh, faction. They conclude, well, Americans are not serious. They're flighty. And therefore, we need not take into account their opinions or values. We can govern from Washington, D.C. And it's, it's uh, don't, don't get me started here on this topic, but it, it is interesting that uh, people who defend not uh, taking into account the preferences of Americans when it comes to governance uh, when they are not in power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and it's easy to say, well, yes. These Americans voted for me. I'm in power. So clearly we are suited to uh, self-government. Right, right. There's, there's always a claim for a mandate, even though we see a vacillation in, among voters, not because they're unserious, but because the parties have diverged so far from one another. They're polarized. We've handed over primaries to the activists and donors, uh, and you end up with very unpalatable candidates. And then you have the sort of the Patrick Deneen types, they come along and they say, well, 77 million people voted for Joe Biden. We have 77 million socialists among us. Uh, they're not real Americans, is what a Hillsdale professor, Glenn Elmers, um, declared after the election. And that's just patently false. People are choosing between horrible options. And if you go into the data, what you find is that Americans tend to choose the presidential candidate that they consider more moderate. And that's very frustrating to the party leaders. They don't want to hear that, but the data is clear. It's very clear. So in 2016, a clear majority of uh, likely voters judged uh, Donald Trump to be more moderate than Hillary Clinton. Uh, 2020, that had, had remor changed remarkably, and people considered Biden the more moderate candidate, and Americans don't like ideology. Okay, so uh, you argue the opposite. Americans are suited to self-government. What's your evidence for that? Part of it's based on my own ideological proclivities, since I am, uh, you might say, center-right, um, small-L libertarian, small-C conservative, somewhere in there, depending on who you're talking to. I'm pleased by the fact that most Americans are center-right. They believe in free enterprise. Uh, they, they're patriotic. They love their country. They reject you know, um, race-based schemes like affirmative action. They reject socialism. So that pleases me. So I would say, yes, I trust them uh, to govern themselves. I think um, you find that when you dig into uh, opinion with focus groups, um, 
and you know that that sort of thing. What you get from Americans is a strong uh, streak of independence, a tolerance for one another, a tolerance for one another's religions and political views, uh, a belief you should pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but also that we should help those in need. It's all the stuff that. We want to be true about America, but in our heart of hearts, we've stopped believing. Uh, but what's happened is the hard left and the hard right, not trusting those opinions, in fact, rejecting them, have done everything they can to pull power to D.C. So whether it's a matter of whether my son, a United States Marine, goes to some godforsaken desert to die, or whether pornography can be accessed in my local public library, I have no say. These are not matters that are voted on anymore because the left and the right don't want us to vote on them. You talk about Alan Wolf, a sociologist. You write in your book, what Wolf found when he laid out extensively in his 1998 book, One Nation After All, was that middle-class Americans, while by no means monolithic in their political preferences, had a wider and firmer base of shared beliefs than was uh, convenient for those who profited from sowing discord. We were closer to one another on the things that mattered, he found, than the talking heads wanted us to believe. Now, it sh- it, isn't it part of government then to uh, take these f- firmly held starting points and come to some sort of resolution. That, I mean, that's the, um, that's, that the was the idealized, that's the that idealized, that's the idealized version. And uh, we, you know, I, if you look into the understanding of the founders, their philosophical underpinnings, their sense of democracy was not, let's put everything to a vote and whoever gets one more vote wins. And that decides the course of our society. They valued an older sense of, of democracy where we reason together. And we take into account one of those beliefs, and therefore we compromise. And that was very important to them. You can see in, in how they did their own voting. They tried to stay away from 51-49 outcomes, but that's how we govern now. A party takes power, and they do whatever they can uh, while they have power to shove their preferences down the throats of the losers. And that's not democracy as the founders understood it. It's not collegial. It's not American. Uh, but that's how both sides govern. And they blame the other side for it. And the frustrating thing to me is we have so many pundits, um, like I write about in my book, I poke fun at them. Um, maybe they won't think it's fun, but I had fun writing it. That whether it's David French on the right-ish or Ezra Klein firmly on the left, um, people who've been cheerleaders for Team Red and Team Blue in the past, uh, when they've looked at polarization in America, they conclude that it's the people who are wanting we're the ones who are intolerant of one another. We're the ones on the verge of civil war. At no point do they consider the possibility that they're the ones who are the problem. It's us who, who are supposed to be faulty, and that's just not true. Well, isn't that natural, though? Uh, yeah, well, sure. I right. mean, I, obviously, I have a perfectly calibrated sense of what is right and wrong and what is politically desirable. Well, that's why I'm and, here with you. Yeah, that yeah. You're trying to convince me that I'm not, <laughs> and that's false, and I am correct on basically all matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure you feel the same way about yourself. I do. Um, right. I. That's why I like the, the vision of democracy that it requires discussion and compromise. Um, this older sense that we're supposed to be locked together in disagreement, as John Courtney Murray used to say, uh, we're supposed to hear one another out and then come to a solution that does not alienate half of our population, which is the argument for federalism and localism, because it's a way to to know your neighbors better. And also, it's easier to compromise with somebody you live near versus somebody who's wearing, you know, the red t-shirt or the blue t-shirt uh, in another state. But, but I think the political class, I know the political class 
prefers that narrative of burgeoning civil war because that's their justification for seizing power and doing what they want. So as a practical matter, what are the uh, tactics of the right and left when it comes to trying to embed their values within the function of government. Right. Well, I've seen, we've seen this shift towards trying to change the rules of the game to favor themselves, whether it's the disaster we made of how Congress is organized and run, uh, to relying more and more on the courts, and then even more than that, executive agencies. Um, I say that with a, a bit of caution because I, I think it's clear that, that when you take uh, the executive branch uh, you no longer control the agencies in a manner that, say, a Richard Nixon might have, or certainly a Franklin Delano Roosevelt did. Uh, the agencies have taken on a life of their own. Um, in many ways, they embody the values of the political class. Uh, but you see, you know, uh, regimes, uh, issue regimes within those agencies that have gone off on their own path. Um, so it's no longer one team takes power and then they can make the agencies do what they want. Uh, they take power and try to empower the agencies to do what they want. But in many cases, the agencies do what they want, regardless of who's in charge. And that's the frightening thing. Um, you know, Wayne, Wayne Cruz did a study at CEI, uh, and he found, he looked at um, the past few years, and he found that for every law passed by Congress, uh, federal agencies passed 27 rules with the full force of law. So even if we had a Congress that was capable of and interested in performing its duty of oversight, they don't have the ability. They have no ability at this point to govern these agencies. And so then the question becomes, well, who will? If I understand you correctly, smash the administrative state. Uh, what else? Well, that's no small matter. But I think the other thing you have to do is you have to figure out how to restore, for lack of a better term, community control over parties and over local government. Um, you've seen sort of the atrophying of state and local party structures in favor of these first national party uh, structures and then independent campaigns because you can raise all your money online as um, J.D. Vance has bragged recently, go on Fox News and get all the money I want. And I understand what he, he meant by that. It didn't sound good, but, but that is a problem. Um, when you can go to the most ideologically predisposed people in the country, the 20% or so of Americans who are hardly ideological and partisan, and that's the dangerous combination because their ideology becomes malleable based on what their party leaders tell them they're supposed to believe. If you can go to them to get your money and your votes, uh, then we have no control over you. So uh, one thing we've got to do is figure out how do you restore more um, moderation in the nomination process? Uh, but the other thing I think you've got to do, and this is where I part ways with some of my conservative friends, is I I'm a localist. I believe that... Um, Wherever possible, we need to push authority uh, to the local level. And in some cases, my conservative friends disagree with that because the local folks don't decide the way they'd like them to. But my point of view is um, that's the only way you're going to reinvigorate American participation in politics. And because of what I know of public opinion, you want American participation in politics. The problem right now is the people who participate are the nuts. And we look at them. We go on Twitter because we all have Twitter accounts and we think that's America and it's not America, right? That's crazy town, right? And I'm part of it. I'm part of crazy town, but that's not America. So you've got to put more stakes, put more at stake at the local level to engender participation. And that's when you begin to retake 
the party and you retake the party structure, whether it's Democrat or Republican. So in a modern sense, does the right or the left, broadly speaking, want more, uh, which side wants more power vested in the federal government? I think uh, you might disagree. I think it depends on uh, who's in office. Uh, we saw the Republicans making noise um, uh, under Obama about um, restoring a balance of power between the legislature and the executive and changing some of the rules in the legislature to do that. And as soon as their guy gets elected, he wasn't everybody's guy, but he was the guy, their GOP guy. All that went away. All that initiative went away. Uh, so I think they're both kind of like the anti-war movement went away when Barack Obama got elected. Exactly. Exactly. There is, uh, depending on who's in office, you're either against drone strikes or for them. You're against, uh, you know, widespread NSA searches of, of our phones or you're for it. Uh, so there's this profound hypocrisy and lack of principle um, because we've let the politicos, the extremists, um, take over those parties. Well, and also uh, there is a stupid amount of trust placed in your guy, mm -hmm. whoever your guy is. Right. That is, you're willing to ignore issues that you cared about weeks ago uh, because your guy is, quote unquote, trustworthy. Right. There is that we see in around 20 percent of the population. I mentioned this marriage of partisanship and ideology, which is profoundly dangerous because ideology will animate these people. They're upset about the direction of policy, but their partisanship makes them deeply malleable. So if their leaders say A one week and not A the next week, they see no disconnect whatsoever. They are foot soldiers for their parties, and that makes them very dangerous. Yeah, Donald Trump was perhaps the most effective uh, tool for getting the American left to broadly support free trade. Right. Right. <laughs> That's right. And free speech. And uh, maybe we shouldn't be surveying everybody on a regular basis. Uh, and that went away. It, it, in fact, it, there's a point in the book to this uh, survey data. Uh, George Bush's final months, there was a question about the federal debt, which was going up because we were trying to make sure we saved all our friends in the big banks on Wall Street. Um, and people were alarmed and Democrats were especially alarmed about the federal debt. And then their guy comes into office and Federal debt went up by, I believe, 800%, uh, and they had no problem with that. Federal debt is not a concern for me because my guy's in office now. Um, that's just irrational. But thankfully, for now, that's a minority of the population. The worry we need to have is when you go back to the 1950s and you look at this data where we ask Americans, are you extremely conservative, extremely liberal, so on and so forth? We found that that percentage of Americans who are very ideological, far left or far right, has gone from about 12% in the 1950s to around 20% today. The question, Caleb, is what is the rate of growth? Now, if that's uh, monotonically increasing, if it's a steady increase, then we can go another 80 years before a majority of Americans are in this twisted ideology partisanship space. But on the other hand, if it was steady through the 90s and then it began to climb up, we may have 10 more years before we've got a majority of Americans who behave like people on Twitter. And my fear is that it's a growth curve because of a lot of other changes in the 90s that allow the political class to really polarize people and activate them. Tony Woodleaf is author of I, Citizen, A Blueprint for Reclaiming American Self-Governance, available today. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 